Well, good morning. So glad that you all are here today. If you have your Bibles, let me encourage you to open to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 9 is where we'll spend our time. And so if you have a Bible, I'd love for you to open there. We'll also have the words on the screen. But you may have noticed some language around here, if you're new to us, that may be different to you, especially if you're new to faith. Because every time we come around the Lord's Supper, or we call it different things, I guess, in different traditions, uh, we talk about coming around the table. And if this was your first time here, you might say, what table are we around? What is this all about? We're not gathering around this little table and finding our way, but it's a, it's a table that the early church gathered around that we continue to find to be so important to our faith journey. So over the next four weeks, I want to talk about the table. I want to talk about the Lord's Supper, Communion, Eucharist, whatever you grew up in your tradition calling. And I think there's so much that's to this table that God calls us to each week. You know, I grew up in a church where every single Sunday we gathered around this table. And it looked a little different how it worked then. At that time, there were guys who came up front and they stood behind a table and they went out and passed out uh, that food differently than we do today. But from the beginning, this table has had such a vital, important place in my life. And so as we come to this month of gathering around tables, November, Thanksgiving, we're going to talk about gratitude and we're going to talk about the importance of the elements of the bread and the cup. So I want to invite you to come back over these next few weeks as we center ourselves again around this most important ritual that still breathes life into us today. I want to begin with a prayer and then we'll get into uh, the message this morning. God, for the tables that we surround each week and for, perhaps most importantly, this meal, (laughs) the snack sometimes uh, that we gather around in this room, would you remind us, would you call us back to the importance of this ritual that millions of people are engaged in throughout the world? God, would you draw us together through this meal? Would you teach us more what it means to gather around this meal? Would you join us at the table? Or more importantly, may we join you since your son Jesus is the host. This morning, God, I pray you'd pour through me the gift of preaching so that Christ should be formed in our hearts. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Well, uh, there's an interesting piece of church that I got to engage in more and more the older I got. And it happened when I got baptized, this next step in my journey with the church. I got to join in after my baptism a group Uh, known as covert ops in our church growing up. Now, you might not have called it that in your church, but this is how it would work. At some point in the service, we would quietly kind of sneak out of our row and we would go to the back where we would meet our commanding officer. And our commanding officer was a Vietnam vet who, it was clear he'd been through a lot by the crew crew cut that he still kept, and he meant business. Because when we'd go to the back, we would be handed these covered trays that we would then pass through the congregation. I'm talking about communion servers, okay? But it felt that way growing up. And we got all these instructions from our drill sergeant, our commanding officer. There were several of them that went something like this. Don't drop the tray, whatever you do. Don't lock your legs, because we don't need anyone passing out during the Lord's Supper. And when you pass the trays, make sure you pass them. And then, did you notice that this morning I was looking around and I saw some of this? Put your arms behind your back like this and wait on the tray to come. 
And then when it comes, don't look that person in the eye because we don't need any awkward looks in the middle of, of, of the Lord's Supper. And once you get the bread, then you take that back and you, you then go and are, do this two more times. One was really important and one was kind of important. The important thing on that was don't take money out of the plate. But I distinctly remember being introduced into this next mode of church and having all these regulations and commands. And i got to tell you, growing up, I don't remember a lesson series on communion. My guess is that probably there was one. I don't remember all the sermons my dad preached, like my kids won't either. But I, I, I don't remember specifically ever being taught about what are you to think about during communion and what is this meal particularly about. Again, I'm guessing those lessons happened at some point, but most of what I learned about communion was more caught than taught. Does that make sense what I'm saying? I caught these things by looking around, by seeing how people engaged in it, and the way they engaged, I thought, well, that's the way we engage in communion. And so it was amazing just looking out and seeing and seeing how people engaged and then trying to take in my own understanding of what all of that meant. Now, a couple of confessions about communion that I need to share this morning, I guess. Uh, When I went into this covert ops group, there were these awkward occasions that would happen and one of the most awkward, and if you've ever been a part of this group, you probably have seen this before. When, when the tray is passed with the juice, there's always uh, that older saint that just happens to get a quarter of her glass uh, drunk. And, and there's always this awkward moment when you're passing the tray of, oh no, someone's going to drink twice on this. Because we all know you can't drink of one cup. That would be insane. That's never happened before, you know. And, and so there was this awkward moment there, but there was, there was more than that. And this is the confession I really need to make is as communion servers, we would go to the back and there was a special room we'd put the bread and the cup in. And I got to confess this morning, there were times I took more than just one cracker. You, if you, I hear some laughs out there. Some of you have stolen more than your share as well, right? See, there's these rules to communion that we grow up with, that we come to understand, and yet sometimes I'm wondering, do we really know the depth of this practice? Do we know how important this ritual has been throughout the centuries? This meal has been taken for centuries. For 2,000 years, the people of God have surrounded themselves at tables. And this morning and over the next few weeks, I want to center ourselves here because I think this table that we're talking about has the power to transform our lives, to change our relationships, and really to set us on a track toward being the kind of people in our community, people of sacrifice that God calls us to be. So what did it look like, that catching that I did growing up? I remember my parents uh, being very reverent during the time at the table. In fact, we were told as kids, this is not a time to mess around. It was kind of a don't do this kind of time, right? I remember getting smacked on the hand a couple times when we were writing notes and doing other things. It didn't matter so much when dad was preaching, but communion, that's a time you don't mess around. And I remember looking at people and seeing people with their eyes closed, and I knew they were thinking and dwelling on something very important. I was just never in on the secret of what that was. So I imagined it was probably something about Jesus. I knew that it was a time of quiet and solemnness. I knew never to look around and make eye contact. But I always knew there was something really important, but I never understood fully this importance. I just watched people and I kind of played the part. And I knew I wasn't to mess up serving communion because that would be a problem. And like I said, it, it kind of became a don't do that kind of time in our church. But as I've begun to study Scripture more and understand more the meaning behind communion, I'm beginning to realize this isn't so much a don't do that kind of time. It's actually a do this kind of time, isn't it? It's the very words of Jesus. Do this in remembrance 
of me. Now, back in the day, and I'm not talking about the 20th century, I'm talking about the BCs, before Jesus came along. I've talked some about this over the last few months with you, but I think it's important to understand where this all comes from, this meal and the sacrificial system and all this. Because in the Old Testament, the people of God are much like the people around them. Because in that time in the ancient world, the gods were seen as angry with humans. So it was the job of humans to appease the gods by offering certain sacrifices so that God could forgive the sin or at least they could be in some kind of right relationship with them. And so as the story of Scripture is written, and the, 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 the story of people of God and, and God come together, the sacrifices are very important in that process of making people holy to come before a holy God. So all throughout the Old Testament, you see these stories about the sacrificial system. And I want to read from the book of Hebrews because it relates back to that older covenant, that time in the past where sacrifice was such a vital part of, of, of worship in the, in the people of God. This is Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. Now, the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. So right from the start, the Hebrews writer is saying, hey, we're going back to the old covenant, to what was going on back there. Listen closely to this story. Drop down to verse 6. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this uh, that the way into the most holy place had not been yet disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They were only, are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. Now this is talking about a lot of the regulations that are talked about in the first few books in Scripture. About the Day of Atonement, a day when the priests would go into the most holy place. And I want you to imagine Passover, right? This important moment. All of these festivals, all of these moments with God, the people had to have their hands washed. They had to be made clean. They had to have sacrifices made for them. Because a holy God could not come into contact with a people who'd been involved in sin. So this was a vital part of Israel's worship, especially on the Day of Atonement. Because on the Day of Atonement, it was a day when everyone would come together, they would confess their sins, and sacrifices would be made. Thousands of animals would have been uh, slaughtered on that day with the blood flowing. I mean, just imagine this scene. This is the same scene we see with Jesus turning over the t- tables in the temple. All these sacrifices being made to cleanse the conscience of the worshiper. And yet what Hebrews chapter 9 is saying is, That didn't really help all that much, did it? It didn't cleanse the conscience like they had hoped. There was still this sense that things were not right with God and His people. It didn't fix this divide. And all of us have felt this at one time or another, haven't we? This sense that things are not right with us and God. There's a distance between us because of maybe sin in our lives. Or we just feel this distance and this disconnection from God. And all of this was meant to cleanse the conscience of the worshiper. But there was something about it that just wasn't working. And that's what the Hebrews writer is talking about. You remember these days. You remember when we used to do this. Did it work? Did it fix everything? And on the Day of Atonement, they would actually take this goat, the scapegoat, and they would cast all the sins of the people over the previous year on that goat. They would place those sins on that goat's head, and they would send that goat out away from the city as a sign of their sin being taken away. All of it seems like a great thing, and all of us want our shame and our guilt to be removed from us. But what we find time and time again 
is that it's hard to let go of that sometimes, isn't it? That we can do all these sacrifices and, and, and act in all the right ways, and yet it's hard to remove that from us. But God had a new plan that He was initiating with a new covenant that was coming. And His plan was so extraordinary because it didn't involve what the sacrificial religions involved from the past. It wouldn't involve the slaughter of animal after animal after animal, year after year after year. Now He was sending His Son, Jesus. And this is what Hebrews chapter 9, as we read on, says about this new time. Verse 11, But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, He went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle. That is not made with human hands. That is to say, it is not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered uh, the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit, offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from the acts that lead to death, so that we may serve the living God. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, now that he has died as a ransom, to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. And if you're one of those people who likes to underline in your Bibles, I want to encourage you in verse 12 to pay close attention to this verse and this phrase, once for all. Because that's a very different departure from the sacrificial system before. Because before it was every time you come before God, more and more sacrifices have to be given. More and more animals killed on behalf of us and the sins that we have. But in this uh, new covenant, what Jesus has come to bring, there's a once-for-all sacrifice that is changing everything forever. See, he's saying that the old system was imperfect. It could not cleanse the worshiper in the ways it had intended. See, a religion has this bent to it, doesn't it? This desire for us to be made worthy before God, to be made holy in some way by our own effort. If we could just say the right prayers or, or do the right things or offer the right offerings to God, then maybe he would be, allow us to come before him because maybe we're in a sense right with him. But that's so different from this new system, this new covenant that God is offering to his people. So now there is this new covenant that has nothing to do with sacrifice because the one sacrifice once for all has been committed, has been given by Jesus Christ. Let's read on in verse 24, the good news of this. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands. There was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. There's two words that the Hebrews writer is trying to contrast here in this passage. He's trying to talk about the Old Covenant. And the way he does that is he uses this phrase, palakis. And this word palakis means again and again or many times. And it shows up in verse 25 as again and again in verse 26 as many times. It's the same word though. It's the sacrificial system, the sense that over and over again we need to make it right between us and God. But there's another word that he's contrasting in the New Covenant. That's the word hapax. And the word hapax means once for all. And that shows up in verse 12 and in verse 26. 
What the writer of Hebrews is trying to say is Jesus did not come to offer himself up again and again. The sacrificial system where we always had to come back together to make this sacrifice, that's done away with because now the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the perfect unblemished lamb, has been offered on our behalf and it never needs to be made for humans again. And this is a monumental shift because think about this. In preschool, all these years they've been having to train priests how to kill animals and then how to get the blood out of the temple. We don't think about this when we think about sacrifice and what that would have been like to go up for Passover for the Day of Atonement. But in seminary, I never had to take that class. And why is that? Well, I wouldn't be very good at it, so I probably wouldn't have been a priest in the first place. But it's because Jesus died once for all. That sacrificial system is gone. Now the perfect sacrifice has been given on our behalf. But this isn't a sermon about sacrifice. It's actually a sermon about the Lord's table. See, after Jesus was resurrected, the early church understood this sense that the writer of Hebrews is trying to say. That we no longer have to come together every Sunday and sacrifice an animal in order to be made right now. That sacrifice has been made once and for all. And so we don't come to sacrifice. What do we do do every week? The people of God came together in the early church and they decided we're actually going to, to gather around a table each week. To remember the once-for-all sacrifice that Jesus gave forth. It's not that we give up worshiping or coming together. But what we realize is we don't come together to sacrifice. What we come together to do is to celebrate the sacrifice that's been given on our behalf. So the church met in homes. And they would meet around tables. And they would look each other in the eye. And they would remember the story of what Jesus had done on their behalf. Now, just because they do that doesn't mean the church is perfect. We're going to read next week in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 about how that can go wrong too. But it's a better way than the way before. The new covenant brings a new kind of life and a new kind of way. But this meal is, seems to be a communal event in the early church. It's a time where they gather together. And what's happened today, it's a bit different when we come together, isn't it? Because we talk about a table, but where is the table? And, and, and we take this not looking into each other's eyes, we We take this meal looking at the backs of each other's heads, don't we? See, there was a shift in the 4th century that changed all of this for the early church. The Emperor Constantine was not a Christian starting out, but he had a conversion experience and some question the legitimacy of it. But the the main thing is all of these Christians who'd been persecuted and had to do all of this in secret and were were worried about being killed for their faith, all of that changes in the 4th century. Because Constantine begins to see this open up to see that maybe we shouldn't persecute Christians. Maybe there's something to this God. And eventually, late in the 4th century, Christianity becomes the the primary religion of the Roman Empire. Now think about how incredible that is. From the small band of disciples that are following this Jesus as Lord, being persecuted and risking their lives for this faith. And now, the entire Roman Empire that used to be persecuting them is beginning to worship Jesus as Lord. Now, does that not sound like good news to those of you if you would have been in that situation? Can you imagine the joy that would have been felt that now we don't have to do this in secret? Now we can build church buildings. We can can hire people like we used to in the temple to help, help guide us in this journey of faith. And so Emperor Constantine, this was a huge shift, what's going on in the Roman Empire. And there's so much good that would come with it. I don't think they'd give it up. Do you? But i got to tell you, along with all that good, there were some bad things that happened. Because all of a sudden, this table, this intimate encounter in house churches, this living this out at the risk of death, now that's no longer there. And now they begin to meet in rows, don't they? They begin to gather in larger spaces. It takes on the decorum of some of the pagan festivals. 
See, it's good news not to get killed, but sometimes when you don't have the risk of your life, faith becomes a little bit lower on the chain of importance. Because of this change, all of this around the table changes in so many ways. And with these changes, Christianity lost its remembrance of the Lord's Supper around tables. And no longer were we looking into one another's eyes to remind ourselves of the story. Instead, what do we begin to do? Hey, quiet down, kids. This is a ritual. What do we begin to do? We begin to worry about how we pass these things out. We begin to make this very formalized, and we forget what this was all about. And before too long, the focus went other places. You you all know maybe about the debates in in the medieval times and all throughout about the elements themselves. That became the focus is the bread and and the juice, the wine, are those actually the body and blood of Christ? And there was all kinds of fights and divisions that happened as a result of questioning, what is this all about and what are these elements really doing? And over time, there became a great mystery around the celebration of the Lord's table. What, what used to be shared around a meal, looking into one another's eyes, eventually turned into a priest that was facing the opposite way of the congregation, saying his prayers in Latin that many of the people didn't even know. In fact, they had to even ring a bell during some of these centuries to tell the people when the prayer for the Eucharist had been spoken because no one understood the Latin that was being spoken at the time. And fear began to come around this meal that used to be this feast in the presence and looking into the eyes of one another. This ritual and all this stuff kind of turns the table in a different way. By the ninth century in Rome, regular partaking of the bread and the cup was the exception rather than the practice that was so common in the early church. The focus went from the joy of the table. And if any of you are going to be around Thanksgiving tables, you know how that works, right? There's joy, there's celebration, there's hardship with families. You know how that works, right? But it became an altar. It's like they went back to the pagan rituals from the very start. God had taken them away from the sacrificial system of blood and sacrifice and all those things. And now it was moving from the table of joy and celebration and everyone together to now... It's mystery. It's fear. It's something you don't do all the time. It, make sure you examine yourself as you should. And this is the bent of religion, isn't it? This is desire to make sacrifices so that we can be made worthy on our own account. But the, the gospel is not that message. The gospel is the opposite. It's the counter to that religious message. It's to say that we cannot be made worthy on our own. And it is only through the sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice, once for all, of Jesus Christ that we are made right with God. So we don't come together in order to sacrifice animals on an altar. We don't come together shrouded in mystery to take the bread and juice in that way. No, we come together at the table of the Lord, perhaps even locking eyes with people. Can you imagine? Reminding ourselves, it's been done once for all. It doesn't have to be done again. Now, don't hear me wrong this morning. I'm not saying it's wrong to focus on the death of Jesus around communion. I'm not saying we don't focus on the cross. That sacrifice is important, and of course it's important to remember that. We'll talk more about that idea next week. But what I am saying is this. The church's practice of communion has at times been more reminiscent of the altar of the Old Testament rather than the table of joy in the New Testament. And our job is not to resurrect the sacrificial system, church. Jesus died, and he doesn't need us to sacrifice for him anymore. We live sacrificial lives, but not so we can be made worthy. No, we come around the table to remember the once-for-all sacrifice that we don't have to get on that cross. Jesus did it for us. 
Now, I know this history might be new to some of you, but I believe that God has called us as a church to pull up to the table of joy together rather than the altar of sacrifice. And sometimes growing up, i got to tell you, it felt more like a funeral service or an altar where an animal was being killed than a table of joy. We, we quieted our kids and we were being quieted as if to say, this is a ritual shrouded in mystery and fear when really the sound of joyful noises of our kids are what we find around every table, aren't they? And those voices of joy that we quiet down and hush Aren't they reminders that this is the next generation of people who need this story as much as we ever needed it? This is the good news of the table of the Lord. I'm excited to share more with you in the weeks to come. Next week we're going to talk about 1 Corinthians 11 and some of how I think we've lived out what the Corinthians were doing and not uh, what God's called us to. But I can't speak for you, but much of what I caught growing up was this altar mentality. But aren't you glad we don't have to sacrifice again? Aren't you glad that we don't have to to bring animals in here every Sunday or or that Jesus would have to come back to be sacrificed again? His sacrifice was a perfect sacrifice. It's all that's needed for all the sin and the shame and the guilt. If we'll cast our cares on Him, if we'll offer our life to Him, if we'll repent and confess the good news and live into His future. Church, this is the good news of Jesus Christ. And it is good news. Because Hebrews 9 reminds us that that's a once-for-all sacrifice. We don't have to do it again. We don't have to build our buildings in a way that the blood flows out, which is something you'd have to think about with the old system. We build our buildings in order to share together. And I don't know what this looks like because it's hard because there are so many that are here and there are blessings to being able to come together. There are many people that would love an edict like Constantine made to change things, right? Living across the world. That's not a bad thing, but if we forget what this was about in the first century, this is a journey of sacrifice, but not sacrificing for Jesus, around a table that reminds us of our journey and who we are as a people. We do not come to an altar, church. We come to a table. So this Thanksgiving, this can be a great reminder to you. You're not going to have an altar in your home, are you? Maybe. Maybe there's a tradition I don't know about. You're going to come to a table, and every gift that we receive, every feast, everything we eat, something has to die in order for that gift to come, doesn't it? This is the cycle of life, is that death has to precede life again. But for us, when it comes to our sins, when it comes to our task as a church, Jesus has paid it all. So this morning, maybe you're wondering, I have shame and guilt. I feel like I can't get right with God. I don't know if that can ever happen for me. I'm here to tell you it can happen for you. And if you want to learn more about what it means to follow Jesus, to get rid of the shame and the guilt in your life, won't you come talk to me after this service? Our our prayer leaders in the back would love to engage you in conversation. We'd love to to baptize you this morning and, and help you understand what this table of the Lord is all about. So come find us after this service if that's your desire. Or if you just want to know what it looks like to walk in discipleship and walk in the confession and the light of the good news of the shame and the guilt going away, we, we, we repent of our sins. We confess our sins. We walk away from the journey of sin that we've walked down. But this sacrifice has been made, and we are not called to sacrifice ourselves again. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's what we celebrate every Sunday. So that if I talk about the cross or not in the sermon, the, the sermon's been preached at the table, hasn't it? Every week we have this feast, this meal that reminds us of the story of Jesus Christ. And we don't want to give that up. That should be the center of what we do here. Amen? We want to see that happen more and more. And so I'm excited to share more with you in the weeks to come. 
But this table should change our lives. It should change our relationships. And it should be the joy that's set before us because of the cross that Jesus endured. Let's pray together as we close our time today. God, I thank you for tables. And tables can be hard when our relationships aren't right. Because tables remind us of the people that we have to look into their eyes and things are not right right now. And so God, I pray for all the relationships in this room and the tables that are difficult places. And would we stay at those tables? Would we work through those difficulties? Would we confess where we need to confess? And somehow would we find the energy and the ability to forgive when it's the hardest thing that we can imagine doing? God, would Sundays be a time where we'd remember the same story? We don't have to sacrifice things over and over again. And I'm grateful for that because I don't want to do it as the preacher of this church. Thank you for this great new covenant. So God, exchange our old hearts for new ones. Take away our hearts of stone and give us your spirit. And may this table be something that changes us so that we might engage in tables in the world that people might hear the good news and see it as they see us face to face from one another. God, these rows, there's something about them that doesn't allow us to fully experience your goodness in your table. So God, would you allow us in whatever ways are possible, even in this space, to engage one another, to to show each other the love and joy of Jesus Christ? Would reconciliation occur more and more because of this table? God, we give thanks for Jesus and his perfect sacrifice, and that we can be made right with you as a result of that sacrifice. Hebrews writer shared this so many years ago, and it is still good news today, and we receive it this morning. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.